0: to the Museum Revealed Podcast, brought to you by Queensland Museum Network. Join me, Dr. Rob Bell, as we chat to the people that make museums so fascinating, from curators to scientists and researchers. It's a deep dive into conversations with these storytellers that inspire us to be curious about our past, make sense of the present, and of course, help us consider the future. Today, I am joined by Heather Janetsky. Heather, why don't you tell us what you do at the museum, because I think it's pretty fascinating.
1: I'm a collection manager here at the museum and I look after the bird and mammal research collections. That must
0: be a pretty big collection, bird and mammals.
1: Uh, Size-wise it is, yes. Um, Not necessarily in numbers because some of the the smaller invertebrates can can can, number. True, you can have drawers and drawers
0: of beetles, for example. But there's big
1: stuff like bears right through to... and whales right through to small, uh, tiny finches. Shrews or finches,
0: yeah, Yeah. okay, amazing. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about the collection as a whole, and this must be the hardest question I think to answer, because it's probably asking which one's your favourite child, but do you have a favourite specimen in the collection?
1: It is hard. Um, Okay, why don't you pick a couple of
0: favourites instead of one?
1: Okay, so like on Monday, I was moving some large mammal mounts around our shed at Hendra, and when I see the big moose, it is, it's a moose head, but Not it's absolutely inspiring. On Tuesday morning, my neighbour found a feather-tailed glider on the grass. It had been blown out of a tree with all our strong winds. And when you look at that and see the beautiful hairs on the tail that make it look like a feather, the little gliding membrane, this is an animal that's no bigger than my thumb. Just absolutely gorgeous, it's It's an adult, it's not a a young one, it's actually an adult. And this one got released, but we do have those in our collection because uh, cats often bring them into people's homes instead. Um, But when you look at those tiny animals, look at the pads on the feet that allow them to climb up glass, um, and in the environment that would be smooth bark of gum trees... Uh, and a tiny gliding membrane for an animal that's small that might go say 14 or 15 metres with a glide, they're extraordinary. So, and that happens with each animal that we actually work on and prepare. So it might be spotted feathers on a tail of a bird, it might be the glistening of Birds of Paradise in the collection. Um, or it, it could be the shape of the teeth in the collection. So I have many favourites. Change it changes
0: daily, by the sound yeah. of it. <laughs> and,
1: and one of the big things is albatrosses. Like oh, to wow. to actually have, uh, we get a lot of beach wash specimens, and some of those are the big wandering albatrosses. And to have those wings spread out oh. while we're measuring them, uh, they're just extraordinary animals. So to have those up close is really, uh, really a privilege.
0: So, so how how Big as an albatross wingspan i mean i know they're, they're huge obviously but like do you have a table big enough to put them off well we,
1: we stretch it right out through our lab wow. sometimes so they can be three meters wow. almost three meters wide and and quite narrow compared to say something like a pelican which is almost as wide but they're uh, almost as long but they're much wider mm. just designed for different types of flight. so the albatross Being continually on the wing is quite long and narrow. And and the birds are just extraordinary, that size bird.
0: Now, you mentioned being surprised by a moose at Hendra. How does a moose come to be in the collection? I don't suppose that fell out of someone's tree with the strong winds. No,
1: (laughs) we we were very fortunate. And and exotic animals are not something that we target. We tend to go for more native animals in Queensland. That's what we're trying to document. But we were offered a number of animals that was picked sort of given to us by the Australian government. It was uh, proceeds of crime uh, Ah, not for the animals themselves Mm -hmm. but somebody forgot to pay their taxes and it was seized as assets and they were offered to the museum. So it came with uh, polar bears brown bears um, all sorts of different trophy heads uh, kudu antelope deers uh, um, it was quite an extraordinary collection and those type of things in our collection are really good for exhibition and they've actually toured through our region, regional galleries through Townsville, uh, Cobb and Coen Toowoomba and um, also Ipswich so that those uh, can be seen uh, and, and it's animals people don't tend to see apart from zoos and occasionally in the wild so it's really lovely to be able to get up close to some of those animals
0: yeah certainly I know I've seen a couple of the ones you just mentioned I know I've seen um, in the the collection here the polar bear I distinctly remember seeing and and you're right it's, it's fascinating whilst I have sort of seen them before not in the wild but I have sort of seen them before it's it's always at such a distance that it is you get the scale but maybe not quite as much as when it's Less than a meter away from you, um, standing upright, even, and you come kind of like, "Wow, that thing is absolutely enormous." Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, so, I, I suppose they might also some of those might qualify for this next question. But what would be some of the some of the stranger elements in the collection? And I suppose that could be either native animals or some of the exotics that you've just mentioned.
1: Um, some. Some of the strange people visitors Some of the things people, people bring in? Well, visitors <laughs> to the collections tend to look at some of the old stuff because our collections are 150 years old and there's a lot of old display mounts and sometimes bad taxidermy um specimens tend to be a focus of some people, so squirrels that might look like they're about to eviscerate you, <laughs> those types of bad taxidermies and then faded, but but there's lots of strange things in the collection and some of those are um like crab eater seals have these most amazing teeth that's, well, like, I to, I suppose. <laughs> that's like yeah crocheted teeth huh. they're just they're just extraordinary and so they'll use those as almost like a colander to push all the water out from the krill that they're eating oh, okay. and that way they're not swallowing the water as well so when you look at it's like their a, teeth, a you just strainer of teeth. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and it's just this. It looks like your grandmother has crocheted the end yep. of a, a doily. It's they're so beautiful. Um, probably one of the strange, And then we have strange things like um, elephant foot rubbish bins that are given to us by customs, oh, okay, and yep. narwhal tusks, which is just yep. like the left tooth of a, a narwhal <laughs> that goes through its lip and keeps going. Um, the
0: unicorns of the ocean. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> and, and, but one of the weirdest things I'm not quite sure on has been, of all things, because our collection is at the whole animals as well as traces of those animals. So okay, I yeah. have nests and eggs and, um, and, and scats. It's oh, okay. a big thing. So that? you have poo in your collection? Oh, we do have lots of poo yeah, well in That would color. definitely count as one of the
0: odd <laughs> things in the collection to but, me. But I, I can understand from a scientific point of view why it's interesting. But some people are, might think that's odd to have. Well,
1: it's actually quite um, useful to mm, have because yeah, often yeah, that's the bit you see. But I have one scat that was brought in by a colleague and it's made of echidna quills. And huh. they're perfectly aligned um, and together. So what predator ate that that's echidna my and managed to get it out the back end and not be damaged and in fact we do have a specimen on display which is a, a, a big goanna parenti that's eaten an echidna uh, the echidnicals have gone through the throat of I've you I've seen that yeah echidna, and both have perished and, and become mummified Whereas this one managed to cope with the animal, uh, you think if the echidna was dead, they might flip it and, and mm. go through the belly with with less but it's problems. Even
0: quills as all,
1: but the quills are there as well. So and and, and
0: you're not sure what animal it's. And that might I'm have not exactly
1: from. sure what it's come from, oh, but it was picked up by a colleague.
0: Fascinated to know because I just cannot imagine any animal. its... Right mind tackling an echidna for food. Yeah, That's yep, it doesn't look or seem appetising, and yet it's obviously managed. to... It's you know,
1: obviously very desperate for food. If that's it must what have been. I mean, poor echidna, but how it's yep. managed to do that—that that is
0: yep. interesting. Now, you mentioned some of the things that come in um, a taxidermy. Do you also prepare specimens on site with regards to that? And that's
1: ninety-nine and percent of what we have is prepared in, on site, and and we work in with a, a big. Uh, network of national park rangers and marine park officers who provide a lot of specimens from the regions and that's really important that we don't want stuff just from Brisbane that we actually, uh, they'll pick up roadkill or, or look for it. it can be remains of animals too, it doesn't have to be whole. So if the animals are in good condition we might make a study skin of that okay. remove the skin, the skeleton, um, you know it's a lot of Things like roadkill or window strikes, anything lying on on the ground for more than a couple of hours in our hot summer sun Mm. tends to rot. So we strip those down and make full skeletons out of those or at least keep the skull because the skull has many features to help us identify the animals. Um, And then some of the animals, if they're in a slightly bad shape, what we might do is actually pickle those and preserve them in alcohol Uh, because... Those sorts of things can give you information on the whole animal that the skins wouldn't give. So maybe the reproductive organs in an echidna we looked at in the last few years and and, um, the gut content of say a striped possum will give you information about what it's been feeding on which might be difficult to observe in the wild.
0: Now when you're taking something down to the skeleton and I, I seem to remember this from something I've heard before you use little tiny animals to do that, is that correct? Little beetles?
1: For some things. For yes, some, yeah. You can percent. tell me a little
0: bit more about them because I remember sure. hearing about it and think that was just fascinating. And,
1: <laughs> and, and, and what a great way to do it. But. And with our coronavirus, too, uh, one of the things is I'm making sure I go in and feed those beetles to keep them ticking over right, the yep. colony. So what we do is uh, usually take off the outside skin of the animal and strip off some of the chunkier muscles and, and the gut contents will be pulled out. But really the rest can be left there. So these are domestic beetles. It's the larvae that tend to do the work. Okay, yep. And so the larvae will chew the flesh off the bones. So they do such a beautiful, delicate work and it might take them a few weeks to work their way through a whole skeleton. Mm-hmm. But things like birds, there's bony ossicles in the eyes of birds and they will eat that eye and the rest of the flesh off to leave really fine bones and they can actually leave it quite almost semi-articulated, just beautiful. Um, And then we just have to uh, usually just wash it and then clean it up and we always make sure we put it through a freezer to kill any other bugs that might be left on that skeleton. Because you don't want those bugs getting anywhere else in the museum, do you? Because there's lots of things around here that they might eat that you don't want them to eat. That's exactly right. So we are always careful to to remove those before we... So they're always in isolation. They're actually... I have to walk through a huge walk-in freezer full of frozen animals and then through a back door of the freezer into a little warm room where the domestics are kept. So if they do escape, they're... They're escaping into a frozen oh, right. environment. so which so
0: insects don't
1: like. No, no. Okay, that's good. But not all skeletons can be done that way. If it's um, quite a big, greasy skeleton, like a whale skeleton, we would uh, use our boiler. So I actually have a huge boiler that uh, we fill up with hot water um, and put bones in and kind of just warm them up slightly and then wait till the flesh and the oil oozes out of those.
0: Well, join us again shortly as we find out a whole lot more about whales as well as the rest of the mammal and bird collection.
1: Did you know Queensland has more animal species than anywhere else in Australia? We are one of the most biologically diverse places on Earth. With over 300 specimens to explore, take a tour through our breathtaking environments and discover how we need to protect and preserve our natural world. Visit Queensland Museum's Wild State Exhibition today.
0: Welcome back to the Museum Revealed podcast, and I'm with Heather Genetsky, who manages the Birds and Mammals Collection here at the Queensland Museum. Um, we touched briefly on whales, which are obviously part of the mammal group, and I wanted to ask a question about them, well, several, but I'll start with the obvious one. Whales generally are pretty big, so they must take up a lot of room. I mean, they're quite iconic for the South Bank part of the museum network. Anyone who's been here would know the whale mall uh, and the huge whales up there. They're enormous things, how do you keep them as part of the collection? Some huge storage somewhere?
1: We do have a big storage, and, and we do have skulls, like sperm whale skulls that are five metres long and full wow. skeletons. Um, and they're kept in a, a warehouse with the large mammal mounts when they're not on display. So it, it does take up a lot of room, but um, as you say, they are big animals, and we try to keep a, a few of each of the species that beach themselves along the Queensland coast.
0: Well, there you go. That's my next question. How does a, a whale specimen come to be in the collection? Do, do they come from um, typically beached ones like that? Um, I don't imagine all species beach with whales, but then I don't really know. Let, uh, tell me.
1: We rely heavily on marine park rangers who are often called out to whale strandings on our beaches. Um, and they'll deal with those animals when, particularly if they're still alive, when yep. they beach. So, we're called in when the animal dies and we have a chance to retrieve the skeleton. It can be a little bit difficult if it's on a beach where there's lots of swimmers. (laughs) You you want to deal with that animal really quickly. So it might be that we just take samples of a baleen or the blubber or or maybe even remove a skull Mm -hmm. to, to take that quickly and the animal's buried on site very rapidly. Um, But if it's on a more remote beach somewhere, then we have an opportunity to take whole skeletons, depending on how large they are. So we don't often get mechanical assistance. Uh, It's only occasionally that we've had a backhoe or or, a Just makes a world of difference. I can imagine. (laughs) But normally we're working with a car trailer and the winch off the front of the car. So the winch is then used to help remove the blubber of the outside of the specimen. Uh, We'll we'll hook that through blubber strips and and it puts tension on the the, the animal so that we can just then cut off strips of blubber. That's the first port of call is to get through that blubber layer um, to get into the meat inside. Um, And we can then just cut through into the bones and then slowly work our way along the skeleton.
0: So it's the skeleton you're primarily after in something like that. That's
1: right. Um, So some of them will be on the beach for uh, a few days before we're able to get to them, if it's in a a remote area. Um, And sometimes it's actually an advantage because there's a lot of other animals that want to attack that flesh. Sure. Microorganisms that help break down that meat. Uh, flies and uh, unfortunately, thousands of maggots as well. That, but that would they, make it a little bit
0: unpleasant, I imagine, well, when you first arrive sometimes. Yeah, it's,
1: not, it's not good, and you usually try and have morning tea before you start, and because yep, you're not going to eat for a quite <laughs> a while after that. But, but, but they actually are, are a, a huge advantage mm. in that they break down a lot of the flesh, which makes getting into the bones a lot easier and the trick with removing skeleton bones is to to cut when you need to and there's an awful lot of body parts of a whale that you can leave well alone where you don't need to cut and that just um, and and just by observing other researchers prior to me the um, Robert Patterson and Steve Van Dyke who are the curators here and working on whales just they had, uh, had worked out where to cut, and that's yep. something that I've learned is where you cut the animal to be able to remove the bone. We have, we have had problems with um, a southern right whale that f- came in and it had come in upside down and flipped itself. So we spent a whole day just cutting this waterbed of a tongue into small strips and winching that off wow. the skull so we could take the get into the skull and take it home. But normally you can uh, get into areas and remove the skull and remove the bones fairly quickly. And, and that's not something I do myself. Uh, we have people who are all volunteers who come with me to go and collect the, the whales off beaches. And, and often we have to do it in a short time. You've got tides, you've got sharks attracted yep. to the areas. Uh, often the tides are at really bad hours of mm. the night. Um, so they, a lot of people will come and assist in removing the skeleton, getting it onto the trailer, getting it home. And then that if it's a large enough animal, we'll take it somewhere like the sewage treatment plant has a, a lovely big grassy paddock out the side of there uh, yeah. where they allow me to store it and then small parts of that will then be brought back to the museum for processing in our boiler. There's a lot of scraping, there's a lot of leaving it in the sun, and then I just do little bits at a time over a long period. I
0: guess they're less likely to notice the smell at the sewage treatment plant. They
1: they don't, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so Urban Utilities has been really helpful in that regard to to actually have a place to, to store it while we can process the bigger ones anyway.
0: So you've effectively got a, a small crack team of volunteer whale skeleton emergency removal people who'll sort of drop things and come and help you out?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so a couple of those are retired <laughs> recently um, over the last few years. And there's a few people who are brought in as ring-ins. And you don't want too many because it is quite dangerous. You're mm. dealing with greasy, well, I greasy gloves, uh, sharp knives, uh, winches, big animals. And so the people who do come with me... Uh, we're sort of getting to know the animals, but I do have some that will come just once, and then that's enough <laughs> for them. And, but
0: I've had the experience; they now know not to go back. Yeah. At least look, yeah. I'm sure it's and not And it's exciting
1: real. to stand next to uh It's it's uh, it's a bit of a mixed emotion because it's really sad when you stand next to a, a really large beach whale, but it's quite exciting as well in that you can be so close again to something that you would um, normally just see moving around yep. in the ocean. So it's interesting.
0: Tell me, it's still on whales just briefly, are there any um, things in the whale collection that have come from, I guess, days of old when whaling was still a thing? I mean, obviously not too far from Brisbane there was a whaling station. Are there any parts of the collection that have come from those days that have been donated, I suppose, or been in people's collections from the whaling days?
1: Yes, and some of those um, are in the social history collection as well. So things like scrimshaw um, and whaling guns, those types of things are are, are part of the collection. We have uh, bamboo tags where, where when the animal was killed, they would put in sort of a marker, big long bamboo with a flag on top, and that was put into... Animals, so that they could see the carcass when it was, when it was moving around. Sometimes it uh, is ear bones that were collected oh, okay. off the humpbacks yep. that went into collections. But typically,
0: it's tiny. But I imagine on a humpback, they're quite large ear bones. Uh, I mean, about a, aus, a fist size. Wow! Yeah. Wow!
1: So about fist size for those. But because the carcasses that were used in the uh, whaling station were so precious, and you every bit of them used. Okay. There wasn't actually whales donated to the museum yep. from that. And it was only in the last few years when we were at Strabrock Island at Point Lookout, there was a 15-metre humpback adult that got washed in there that we had an opportunity to collect the whole skeleton of a humpback. And a really iconic species that passes our beaches. Uh, we'd had skulls before, we'd had partial vertebrae, uh, and certainly a number of calves that had beached themselves as well. But, but that was adult. the very first full adult we had. And, and thankfully we had an excavator from the, the council that helped an, a number of marine parks people. And, and that skeleton is actually being degreased at the moment and, and will be articulated after the, the cleaning that we've done. And it's going to head back over to Point Lookout as a display item.
0: Oh, that's excellent. I mean, it's it's nice, I suppose. It's something that is obviously a a tragedy for the animal and and a loss for them, but you can turn it into something positive and and it can be a a learning moment and and something um, for the area as well. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, excellent. So now I suppose the whole purpose of having a collection is to learn about these things, and and that's for the public, um, but also for researchers. So researchers come and use the collection do they to as reference points how does how does that work
1: the ways in which the collection is used is as varied as the specimens we have in it so um, taxonomy is one thing naming animals and and probably 150 years ago that was a a major thing in the bird and mammal collection because people didn't know what species were here in queensland it hasn't stopped. Um, there are small marsupial mice that have just been uh, named from a number of areas, including just here in Brisbane. But, so that taxonomy, the naming and finding of new species continues, particularly with genetic studies as well. They'll, that really helps to show up where there's very uh, you know, strong variation when the animals kind of look the same outside, but genetically they're quite different. Um, but it might be a, a way of look. At, they might just look at the width of the beak of a bird that's a rainforest species to see whether it's a transmitter of the the seed dispersal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, people might grind a shaving off a tooth and look at the isotopes, the carbon and oxygen mm. isotopes, which tells them what that animal was eating, the type of. Um, plant and also what type of whether it was uh, a lot of water around or not at the time so they'll look at um, say kangaroos in our collection now they'll look at ones that were collected 150 years ago and then Mm. look at fossil kangaroos so it's a way of seeing how uh, how time has changed and how climate has changed over that time that's a big push with a lot of say birds in the collection now they're looking at. Birds that perhaps live in arid zone uh, bill width, which where they lose a lot of their heat through that, whether that has increased or not oh, over changing. time, and so it shows how the the collections can be used to to help document some of that climate change, or it could be where species have um, are now gone from an area such as a brigalow where there's a large proportion of that habitat lost and it shows where those animals used to be. People just use it in so many different ways and we get as many artists as scientists using the collection or a large number of them and that's used in many ways. They can be looking for accuracy in their Mm -hmm. birds such as a field guide on birds and they want to know this red feather is in this area or they could be painting a picture of an endangered species and artists are really good at connecting with people. Scientists uh, will often produce papers on really important uh, topics but sometimes that doesn't get across to the public and artists have a sometimes have a foot in both camps and they are, are a really good way of communicating with people by just painting a picture of an endangered species, such as, you know, the Bramble Cay melomies became extinct this last couple of years. And just getting that information out to people uh, to show them what it's like, it's really important. Um, or artists might just come in and look at the colors of a beautiful eclectus parrot and go, yes, um, I'll use those in a silk scarf. So the, the uses are many and varied.
0: Yeah, that, that's amazing to, to learn that it's, it's a huge reference point, but not just, as I wrongly assumed, not just for scientists, but for all sorts of people to come in to have a look and to see how that might affect their job from creating a piece of art to naming a new species.
1: That's right. And also information um, that's generated within the collection is then used for exhibitions. Uh, and so, particularly with mammals and birds, they're big space fillers and so they tend to get used in a lot of exhibitions like our Wild State display that we
0: have on. the moment. Wow, fascinating stuff. Heather, thank you so much for joining us on the Museum Reveal podcast. Um, I certainly learned a lot. What did, what did you out there discover? in this episode and if you're interested in learning a little more well follow the Queensland Museum on social media that's at qldmuseum or just head to the website which is qm.qld.gov.au and you can also sign up to the news list where you can keep up to date on absolutely everything and don't forget there are show notes that go along with this podcast where you can find out even more about what Heather has been telling us don't forget there are also show notes that go along with this podcast where you can find out even more about all of the things that Heather has been telling us And until next time, stay curious.